realize that you were going to make a commitment. And I'm not going to define that as like, I'm going to march every day on the street in, in, in racism. Mm-hmm. But you're going to make a personal, in your self-commitment, that you're going to do everything within your power, financial structure, geographical location, job, whatever you have, but within your power, says I'm going to commit my life, whatever I got left, to dismantle racism. That's a goal. That's, that's it for me. Okay, I, I got that in there. That doesn't place. The next thing is, is intimate relations, being close to black men. This is episode 32 with Aaron Johnson on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Although making up 13% of the population, African Americans own less than 1% of the rural land in the United States. White Americans, however, own a staggering 856 million acres, which is about 98% of all rural property in the United States. That's wild, right? So it's not crazy when I say that communities of color, low-income residents, and other historically marginalized groups have traditionally faced barriers to accessing nature. And that's why Ancestral Health Radio is dedicated to and promotes inclusivity and social justice through transitional lifeways. Because it's the most disadvantaged and powerless people in our societies who are most likely to be affected by rising fuel and food prices, resource shortages, and extreme weather events. We want to increase the chances of all groups in society to live well, healthily, and with sustainable livelihoods. But first, we have to accept that although much progress has been made, there is much much more work that needs to be done. And most of that work begins and ends with us as an individual. An individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Martin Luther King Jr. To rise above, you must first begin to ask yourself better questions. And to help me do this, I've invited my good friend Aaron Johnson on today's episode of Ancestral Health Radio. Aaron shares insights into how we, as white Americans, can begin to break down cultural barriers that blind us from seeing the truth of our privilege. That's why it's so important that in today's episode, you learn why Aaron believes there are so few black people within the rewilding community. The first thing Aaron says you need to commit yourself to if you wish to become an ally to people of color, questions that will help you critically examine your own relationship to blackness, and so much more. Aaron Johnson is an earth builder, teacher of closeness, and activist. He graduated from the California Institute of the Arts in 2007 with a Bachelor of Fine Arts. He has made a lifelong commitment to use the skills he possesses to end 
racism. In addition to using intimacy and closeness to blackness as a primary means to that end, the tools he frequently uses are speaking, teaching, singing, photography, filmmaking, and minimalism. Aaron leads a mentoring program called Turn It Up Now that focuses on elevating the power, talent, love, and work ethic of youth. He believes that deep connection is one of the most powerful tools one can use in dismantling racism, and I would have to agree. Aaron, welcome and thank you for joining me today on this very exciting episode of Ancestral Health Radio. Uh, thank you so much. Honored to be here. Aaron, who are you and what do you do? I, I'm a deep connector. Um, I have a program I call um, Deep Mentorship. I work with uh, young adults and young people uh, in a deep way, a small group, but deeply. I also am an earth builder. Um, as we speak right now, I'm inside my little earth dome, 13 feet tall, 13 feet wide. Um, I'm a minimalist. I live here with my wife in this small space. I'm a two and a half acre plot. There's a normal size house next to it. So we're very close. And um, the individual people that I mentor live in the, in the, in the wood structure. And I live in the earth dome here. And uh, I, I think if I want to kind of summation a lot of my work uh, is holistic resistance. I, I, I feel like that I resist oppression with my whole self. And so through my music, through my short films, through my artwork, through my counseling programs, all of it, it encompasses the whole person. And that kind of sums up kind of my, my spirit and sums up my goal in working with uh, right now. And I'm, I'm deep in it right now um, in dismantling racism. And right now, yes. I'm simply working with white people and integrating that. So that's kind of my, my DNA and my work as of today in the last probably two years. It's been really heavy and deep in that. Well, wow, what amazing work that you're bringing into the world. Um, let's kind of open that up for people. What exactly, in your work and your practice, um, how exactly are you dismantling racism? Yeah, you know, it's, it's been great in the sense that, you know, it's, I didn't know I was like getting prepared for this particular work uh, for the last 20 years of my life. But growing up, I always was, uh, you know, one of five people in my graduating class, African Heritage. Um, at, at almost every job college more educated I got the more active I got to education I was the only black person in the room 90% of the time and just recently in the last two years um, I formally got asked to um, be lead producer for this really great high school program called Black Voices Rising and I come into this organization and I'm the only black employee a part of the organization and I'm supposed to <laughs> wow. help think about black people and so yeah. this is the thing that happened and I did this workshop with you know principals and and superintendents and the, the head of Digicom and, and this community. And I realized that I was trying to help them think about black people in a very formal way in like a day-long workshop. And from that point wow. forward, I realized I need to formulate a program that took me into white environments and help integrate them and mm -hmm. help, help them understand that there is a right way to integrate and think about black people and there's a dangerous way to do it. And so that has kind of led me to many experiences, including obviously Echoes in Time, Mm. Um, in Oregon when I was there as the first African-American instructor um, for that. So it kind of, uh, that was kind of the formal instruction. So obviously every time you go into a community, every brand of oppression is different. So, so I'm, when I'm in Palm Springs, it's a different kind of racism. When I go to you know, Portland, it's a different kind of racism. Mm -hmm. Like here in the high desert, it's a different kind. So I customize each person, each environment, but I realize I need to have a formal program. That's what launched kind of holistic resistance counseling program and what launched the workshop that I'm doing. I actually have one coming up in November um, in oh. Oakland. And it's really about me. And I have a co-teacher who's African Heritage woman. 
and um, and and me working with you know ten or twenty white people. We're this in a room. Is, this is in November. Six hours. This is on November eighteenth. Yeah, it's in Oakland. That's right near me. So I just want to. Oh yeah. I'll try to make it to that. And for those uh, um, listening, also, can you just tell people what Echoes in Time is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Thank you. Uh, Echoes in Time is a rewilding uh, gathering skill, ancestral skill share um, uh, gathering of about 300 people. Uh, and they teach, share, they, they, they kind of camp and share skills, food, medicine, all kind of uh, based off the rewilding uh, philosophy. And it's mm-hmm. hosted um, by uh, Rewild Portland, uh, Peter, uh, which is a, a fantastic uh, thinker and, and individual, inviting me up to teach as an instructor there. And of course, in the weeks and years <laughs> prepping for that, right. we talked in depth about how you're going to be the only black guy there, probably the only black person on site uh, as an adult. And, uh, and, and that was just kind of amazing that this, this has been going on for 25 or more years. And I'm just now the first African-American exactly to to be a part and that's if you understand like the the breadth and width of that trauma (laughs) exactly that's pretty massive yeah and that's you know what and that's why i'm so excited to have you on today because why Mm -hmm. and why is nobody talking about it how come that's not out in the open more than anything i think this is so important because i am all about building community it's all about bringing people under the same umbrella so this is really exciting so how do you feel your work specifically fits into rewilding so in the context of rewilding, I think you look at nature in rewilding, and, and we're, we're diverse. We have nature works in a diverse way. Mm-hmm. When you leave the human part out of it, we're diverse. Once you bring the human element into it, all of a sudden we segregate. <laughs> and the only time we see this kind of segregation in uh, kind of uh, uh, plants is when humans get in there and start to segregate them. Um, so I find that my work integrates. It brings us back to a wild sense. I mean, I'm working only in one lane, black people. <laughs> yeah. But I figure, you know, if we have, you know, everyone in their own lane working properly, we'll have every single ethnicity that the human race has. And, you know, ethnicity and race is kind of a myth, but as the idea of America, we believe in it. So I'm not trying to work outside of what um, the brainwashed and sublation has already given us. But we have a variety of skin tones. We have a variety mm-hmm. of cultures Absolutely. working together to create a community. And so that's kind of where my work sits. And I take it from, I don't do workshops that have 50 to 100 people. The largest workshop I'll do right now is 20. I prefer smaller mm-hmm. because the amount of work I've seen effective is being close to people. Mm. And being close and tight knit, it takes time to work through trauma stories. So in that space, I find in order to my work to fit, it's intimate, it's deep, and it's over a period of time. So I much rather work with five people over a period of sixteen weeks than a thousand people for one weekend. Because I realize when I work with that quality, we're talking about really getting to the depth of working with um, bringing us back to a more. Uh, wild mindset with a civilized major influence if i can use that kind of analogy or use that kind of strategy because i feel like as humans we have you know little inklings moments where we're wild <laughs> i don't even know that. You know, like when we have a child or when a child is born it's a moment in there if it's not surgery it's a wild moment right i think right that verge of birth we kind of see our humanity a little bit these little moments that we still have left in our culture sometimes when we um 
make music. When music is happening very raw and an honest way, you see the wild human come out. And that part of it, I think, is where my work likes to sit. That's the nest I like to sit in, is that place where we can be human and notice the human in each one of us and be, do it in a way that's not hostile. Or it doesn't feel, it feels safe for individuals to kind of yes. notice the trauma they have. Right now, that is going to be the focus of this episode, and I think it's so very important because within the rewilding community specifically, I see very few people of color, and that brings up a great question. Why? I think think for me, obviously, I'm still answering this, and it has probably a thousand answers, but what I'm noticing is simple. Um, The structure of rewilding is is kind of a privilege. (laughs) The idea... To, to take two weeks off, just the idea to take two weeks off and go into a gathering um, is a privilege. And so economically, if you look at nature, there's two elements in play here. There's me, but there's two specific ones. African heritage people have a trauma with nature, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very deep history of, of trauma with African heritage people with trees and with uh, uh, being isolated in nature. And this is based off of post-slavery and during slavery trauma. That's not really talked about a lot. No, that's never talked about. It's not. And and white people have this structure of if you go to Yosemite or or any of these these national areas, the the, the camping, the the way we structure nature as a culture in America, it's something you have to buy into financially. Absolutely. It's not something that's accessible. It's like biking. You, know, you go to biking, you buy a little shorts for like $85 right. to, to be hit. But the, it's this whole branding and marketing system yep. that bleeds into the rewilding, right? Mm-hmm. And so when these privileges go at, go at each other blindly, they, they eliminate people of color. Now, <sighs> take it into the actual rewilding community, kind of the, the mechanisms. When, you, when I talk to the people that are in these workshops and I ask them, I say, hey, you know, how do you feel? You know, I'm being here. I'm talking to them about it. And, and, and often as they go, I never even thought yeah. about it. I didn't even notice for 20 years I've been coming. I didn't even notice that there were that there were no uh, black people. <laughs> and so a lot of it is the white people haven't even taken an opportunity to think who's not here. Yeah. Because historically, any rewilding and outside of it, rarely do white people have to think about who's not here. Oh, see, they that really is interesting. About that. that is um, black yeah. people walk into a space. We always go, wait, wait, who's here? How many black people we got? Okay, that two of us. Okay, <laughs> I can make it. Right. There's none. <laughs> we right. always are aware of our numbers. White people are like, oh, we're just having a good time. We're just out here. That's crazy. You know? That is such mm-hmm. a simple observation. <laughs> but yeah. to have that cultural blindness is yeah. wow. So as you're having these discussions, what typically are some of the questions that you like bringing up? Well, for me, one of my goals is that I realize I'm a walking contradiction. I am in this environment. I'm by myself. I bring two other people with me. But in these environments, I realize I'm alone. They see I'm alone. They see I'm different than maybe the average black individual come to these events. Mm-hmm. But what I do is I try to get to know them. I don't even say like, hey, I don't have a black guy to talk to you. I might just be like, who are you? Right? Uh, and and what's, what's hard about your life? What's good about your life? And once I start creating bonds, then I start laying in the questions. Mm. Several people I start talking to, I, I said, can I talk to you for an hour, please? I just, anytime today, this week, I know we're going to be here for about four or five days. If you can block out an hour, I want to sit down with you and just get to know you. And, and part of my intention here is oftentimes I realize that they're having their first intimate conversation with a black man. They might be in their 30s. I, they don't ever confirm that. But I can tell by about 30 minutes into it that they, 
never have actually asked themselves any of these questions to actually direct it to an African-American man in front of them that has attention to listen to them. Hmm. And so for me, I try and just allow them to to be candid. It might make a mistake and say something kind of racist or say something a little rude or they right. don't know it. Oh, I'm sure. They're stepping on these little landmines yeah. all laid out around them with oppression and privilege. <laughs> I just listen and I politely may pick one of them and say, did you notice this? And then did you notice that? And a, a good example of that, um, it happens every time. We, we, every evening we met um, at the end of the day with several of the people that were uh, veterans and part of the leadership of this particular workshop, Echoes and Times. And we were talking and talking and then someone walked up and this individual, we're all talking, and she, and she goes, I dated a black guy, you know? I dated mm. a black guy. And it was funny, we've been talking about 45 minutes, I'm not getting into the context of conversation, but we're talking, I thought, no one's mentioned, <laughs> no one's mentioned that they dated a black guy like 10 years ago, five years ago, six months ago, to kind of qualify their love for black people. And and so what happened <laughs> yeah. was, um, I was just thinking, I'm like, this is pretty good, no one said that. And right when I thought it, maybe within five minutes, she's like, hey, I just want you to know, I love black people. So, so I love black people, is the idea is that it's a difference between loving black people and, and even dating one and actually being close to one. Mm. There yes. is a difference. There, being close to a black person is a different difference there. I want you to unpack that for people then because you know yeah. there, there are multiple layers to that. That is very important to understand, especially because obviously being white, I definitely have my blinders on. But yeah, please break that down, not only for myself, but yes, please for the audience. Yeah, I think one of the critical parts is black pain. Um, I think if you're going to have an understanding and closeness to black people, you have to have your hands around the neck of black pain. And what I mean by that is, is, is there's a rare experience. Where we, for example, if you just Googled right now, black man crying, mm-hmm. okay? There's probably one video that will show up and it'll be a mockery of a black man that was on maybe Oprah or some show that was crying. He had a really passionate cry. And it sounded different. And there's thousands of memes that are in front of him. Hmm. But there's no actual authentic experience of watching a black man cry documented that's easily accessible for people. Okay? Hmm. And I almost can guarantee my father passed away in 2010 in an accident. And I, I grew up, and we go to about six funerals a year. And I saw my dad cry one time in my entire lifetime. Right? Wow, And the reason that's significant is, is the, the level and the rarity of actually real black male emotion, because that's the example here, there's many examples we can use, mm-hmm. is part of being close. And I've talked to couples that have been married to black men for five years, six years, and I said, I've never seen my husband cry. I've never seen him cry. We've had death, we've had tragedy, we've had challenge. I've never seen him cry. Now, mind you, this is also a male issue, but when you take into a black male issue, it's hyper. And so it comes the idea of difference being close is being able to sit next to and witness all of their pain, all of their strength, right? And their trauma story history, okay? Because each each culture has their kind of massive history, Native Americans, African heritage, mm-hmm. and even white people, Italian, you go on the list. But only a handful, you get the opportunity to see the individual impact of these trauma stories. Yeah where it showed up in their life individually. And oftentimes I was asking questions around sexuality, and I don't mean just like how big someone's penis is, this kind of narrative here. I'm talking about their early hurts around sexuality, their early conversations around sexuality, the early, that's how we get to know them. It's not just having sex with a black man. In a workshop in Oakland I did, like a day and a half workshop I was there with a group called Wake Up, 
And I was talking to this group and I said, having sex with a black man is not necessarily being close to him. Same kind of concept. No, we started breaking not. down this idea of how being close mm-hmm. is really a mental, spiritual, going back to my holistic resistance idea. It's the holistic, it's the whole black male. And so right. I say being close, I really want to stay with three simple ideas. Being next to their pain, having you'll be sitting next to it, not trying to fix it, but listen to it. Mm-hmm. Being able to allow to be vulnerable enough to allow them to be a complete human being. Allow them to cry, allow them to separate, and allow them to really be a whole person around you in a real way. And that, at that point, you're going to step being close to. Once you can experience those basic ideas, um, you can now say, I'm getting close to him. I'm actually understanding his story, right? Mm-hmm. And, and another thing, too, I think that, that also kind of defines our flesh of the idea of being close is the idea of understanding where historical trauma enters his personal life mm. okay for example i'll use an example and people may confuse one thing you probably won't see a lot of and you might go to a black church and you'll hear a lot of this called divine healing praying for people and you may go oh, they're praying for folks that's, that's the thing they're doing but you'll find they oftentimes will talk bad about the doctor don't go to the doctor man let god heal you or don't go to a therapist you make all this like they i don't know they're just uneducated how maybe the medicals could help them i'm not even going go into the politics of if the medicals could help them or not but if you listen to this, um, it's a book called A Medical Part- Apartheid. I read it in college and I was doing some video work around okay. it. But it goes to the methodic, methodic exploitation and attack on black bodies in the medical field. Mm. And when you start to see how many times black women slaves have been experimented on by doctors, torn apart with no anesthesia, doing kind of studies. And these doctors now have these like no nice you know, you know, statues in, in New York and there's hospitals named after them and departments that honor them on the backs of these black women, these silent sufferings. Let me just kind of touch on the surface here. This book kind of goes, it's like a 500 page book. I, I listen to an audible just because reading it, and I, I, I've actually got only halfway through this book because I only, I read it and then I have to discharge on the process of it. And then I go back and read it some more because it's such heavy material when you right. start to fill it, you can't just consume it. So I want to give that kind of warning of understanding how in depth it's and dense. painful it is yeah. to get into. But it's so crucial to understand that that translates into black people saying, I ain't going to the hospital. Also, we were talking about privilege and the idea yes. of just being able to go into the wilderness. Well, think yes. about the land ownership here in America. Mm-hmm. There are maybe mm-hmm. four or five white landowners who own more than the total combined land ownership of every single African-American in America. And so think about that for a moment. How do we break those barriers down? How do we begin to do that? Are you saying that it's it's basically it's on a face to face personal level? We do this on an individual level. Is that how we do it? Yep, I, I, I'm a big advocate for one on one. That's why I it, it, anytime I do work, I don't care if you're across the country. I want one on one phone calls. I want one on one or small nice. groups. Good. It's so hard to hear each other when you're a guru on a stage or when you're when you're a amongst a thousand people but when you're in a room with someone five people one person me and you on the phone here we are this is how we can actually hear each other this is how we can actually get to bondage so that anytime anyone i've counseled with if they were to die i'd miss them i miss if they were to get hurt and sick i would be sad yeah right? because i bond with every single person i counsel and work with and so for me, that bond is part of the healing process. And I'm specifically talking about white people specifically here. Um, and, I, and, and all people, but I'm, I'm talking about when I'm doing my counseling programs, specifically around white people, I help them miss me. 
<laughs> I helped I like them that. when I if I was to die, you know, a couple of months ago, you wouldn't have cared or noticed because you knew who I was. Right. But as we get bonded, mm-hmm. and as I actually listen to your podcast, I'll listen to some of your earlier stuff. And I'm bonding with you because you know, podcast is popular where we're one on one, I'm all of a sudden gonna start to miss you. It clicks. And that right there is the level where we can start to heal. So that's the closeness that you're talking about, right? Yes, yes, yes. And that's how we fix it. I know it doesn't sound scalable. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't see a lot of major success just watching videos online. I mean, I think it's good. I, I don't see a lot of success in massive workshops. Right. I think it's good to have them, but I feel like it has to be an intimate process. If intimate's not there, if intimate activism is not a part of this process, I feel like we're not going to see the, 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 the needle not going to move that much. I, I'm very excited that you said that because that is one of my biggest passions is, you know, we have this platform, right? We have this awareness that we can get our message out online through these amazing vehicles of technology. However, the magic does not happen through technology. The magic happens between people. So um, my biggest passion, my biggest mission here for Ancestral Health Radio is yes, to get the message out, but really more than that is to bring people together. So that's why this message is huge. Because again, any way that we can include any person of color, regardless, and at least open the eyes of some of the people that may be more privileged and, and are in the community, uh, that's really where the magic happens. Yeah, I love that. I love the work that you're doing. And let's get into some of the some of the nitty gritty. Like, sure. let's let's really talk about some of these questions and really try and open up, you know, some of those some of those ideas or some of those observations that you have made. That mm-hmm. perhaps I have my, you know, again, my cultural blinders on. Maybe I just don't sure. see it in that light, but I want to. Mm-hmm. So do you want me to ask you questions, propose questions, and break down how I kind of present them to a normal workshop? How do you think you want to? You can ask me questions and guys listening, you can use this exercise with you and your partner or a friend or anyone back home or share this episode with someone who might want to do this practice with you. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much, James, for being in that space and that. Before I go into any of my examinations, I always give this kind of preference for context. I do this with you. I do this with everyone I work with. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's a couple of things I, I want you not to do, <laughs> if you can help this. Yes. Is trying to think too hard about it, just trying to answer, you know? Okay. Um, and also trying to try to fight off any kind of white shame you may have right. that may pop up to kind of interact. Um, and I say that only because there's so much to learn with being just human and being wherever you are. Yeah. And I also want you to understand that I am, I know you know this, but I'm going to say it on the record here, is that by no means am I trying to challenge your intelligence, am I trying to attack you. Mm-hmm. I'm simply trying to bring content to help us think about black people in a mm. better way. That's the spirit of it. Thank so you. I just wanted to be very clear because I feel like that's how we can grow. If I'm always coming at you and saying, you haven't read that, you don't know this, it's hard for you to think well, <laughs> right? right? It's not about that. It's no. not about this is where I'm at because I'm growing too. <clears throat> I think we can grow together if we can be humans at the same time. I think that's vulnerability, you know, guys listening, I think, yeah. you know, really the, where that happens is that act of vulnerability. So yeah. if, if you can do that with another person and especially uh, with this episode, please try and share that. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. So the first thing I want to say is there's a couple of ways to think about questions. Some of my questions, the answers are important. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the question itself is important. The answer is there, but the actual question and how you process the question is the actual goal. So understand there's multiple ways that we're going to use these questions to be useful. Okay. I also want to say quickly too, is that being that you are a person that's probably been in nature 
and you probably experienced nature on multiple levels. I'm assuming you've been in a plane. I want to break this down real quickly here because I might ask you to go through this exercise with some of my answers. I call it slow it down. Okay. And the idea is, is that when you fly over a forest in a plane, you kind of see it in this big, beauty, wide open space, right? It's just gorgeous. You're flying a plane over a forest. Mm-hmm. And then there's a way you can drive through kind of a forest. You send right. me, you know, and you can drive through and you look through and you see it. And then there's a way you can walk into maybe as a hunter or as a part of it, maybe even barefoot. And you walk into the forest, you have a whole different experience as a hunter, as a person, as a part of the integrated. Yeah. Integrated in that. And there's three levels of these questions. I want you to think of it. Sometimes you might say, yeah, I was eight years old and I fell in love with this black girl and she was great. And then she left and I was angry. That's, that's the airplane view, right? Mm-hmm. And a car, you might be like, she was really cute, but my mom and my family didn't mm. quite want me to be there. And so I kind of was unsure how to be around her, but I just really cared for her. But I was eight. I didn't know anything. That's a car view. Now, if you walked in as a kind of an impersonal, in nature, integrated, it's like I remember feeling very, very scary the first time I touched her skin. Mm. The way she smelled, or whatever kind of details you can kind of grasp, that more of that integrated in the forest idea. So I ask the question, I might say, you know, what was the first time you saw black sexuality, right? You have an aerial view, you have your car view, and you have your integrated view. And when I say slow it down, I want you to take it down to that intimate level of like, I was scared, I knew what to see, I was excited, I was aroused. You can kind of define it in your own way. Okay. And so I really want to encourage that we're not just giving these kind of, kind of top answers. We want to get to the bottom of it. And so let's kind of put that as a slow it down. If we get to that point, we will get there. So a couple of questions I have for you um, is when I say the phrase black exploitation, what images moving or still pop into your mind? Uh, hip hop. <laughs> I'm thinking of almost like appropriation when I think of this. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. That's typically what I see. Perfect. Thank you. Um, what stops you? or slows you down from being truly close to blackness. And right now we'll say a black man. Mm, It would be fear, you know, honestly. And it's more of the, the fact that I've never had a deep, compassionate relationship with another black man. Not that I'm not willing to, it's just, uh, again, the social conditioning that I've had and the, the area that I grew up was primarily, I don't know, Caucasian and Asian, you know, influence. Mm -hmm, And mm so there weren't, a lot of African-Americans around for me to interact with. Not that I wouldn't, but the the reality is that um, what I'm into is so niche that like we're talking mm-hmm. about in this episode, I can't build those relationships because of not only my trauma, but because of theirs. So yeah. um, I, I would love that. And that's why I'm having this conversation. But um, mm-hmm. really, if I'm being honest and being honest with you, I'm being honest with the audience and myself, it would really be a fear-based mentality and it would be surrounded around the perception of myself, around my white privilege, and just my misunderstanding. Huge. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to just note that entire part, but I want you to hold on to that thought of fear. It may come up again because this is a tool that I have never asked a series of questions about fear being associated or bring up directly. It's an important place that stops us, stops me and you mm-hmm. from being close. It's, it's a fake thing in the sense that there's no reason I should be fearful of you. There's no reason you should be fearful of me in right. reality. Yeah. But there's the trauma points that our, our culture play into that divide me and you from being close, right? Um, so I'm gonna go on a little bit long. We'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah, please. Um, how open are you to feeling and being next to deep 
black pain. I would love to expose myself to more of that. My past experience is not, it's very shallow. I have not had very much of that experience. However, if you're asking how willing am I, I'm very willing. Sure. I'm, I'm sure. willing to be uncomfortable as possible. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's really important. Okay, so what was your first introduction in your life that you can remember clearly as a child, maybe even as a teenager, and then also as an adult? What was your first introduction to black sexuality? So when I was younger, I had a, uh, I lived in Louisiana in the South mm-hmm. in Shreveport. And I went to a school there and one of my best friends at the time was black. So I think we like mm-hmm. flashed each other once, you know what I mean? Kind of like mm-hmm. that, that whole thing. And, um, that honestly, that was like the first experience I ever had with black sexuality was with another male, uh, black gentleman. I think that was like in third grade or something crazy like that. But yeah, um, that was yes. the first experience that I ever had with black sexuality. That's huge. So here I want to slow it down a little bit. Um, first feeling I want you to think about is the feeling that you can, if you can grasp any feelings you had um, in reflection about that period of time, what feelings did you have in that first sexual experience of blackness as a third grader potentially? Any feelings you can remember? You know, back then it was more curiosity. And as you, I think mm-hmm. as you know, your culture shapes you as you grow, then mm-hmm. that's when the shame comes in, mm-hmm. you know? So for mm-hmm. me, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like a big deal back then, you know, as I go get older, I realize, wow, that was kind of like an, maybe an uncommon thing. But then again, it was in Louisiana and Shreveport. There's a lot of factors that play into that. It's so difficult to really, you know, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. really nail down or anything. But again, I don't think it's, I don't think necessarily you're trying to get a, a specific answer so much as you are just trying to talk about the subject. Yes. But, and I will also say is that Every experience we have, be it third grade, be it one-year-old, be it be in, your, in your mother's womb, mm-hmm. they have impact right. on how we bond and interact with other people. Definitely. Now, I'm not going to get scientific on this, but we can just kind of use our kind of almost um, brilliant minds to understand how we absorb so much mm-hmm. um, and how these have quiet impacts on our decisions. Now, what I want to talk about briefly, too, is once you pass the age of 18, Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you have your own narrative I'm somewhat familiar with. But what was your first black sexual experience as an adult where you have more control of your time mm-hmm. and maybe have a clearer picture of more of the culture that bleeding to your heart and mind at that point? Um, what was your first black sexual experience as an adult? And we'll use 18 as a symbolic idea of an adult. So the next experience that I had, um, personal experience, sexual experience I had with an African-American female, this girl actually, um, yes. she was a mutual friend of some other friends that I had. I, I think honestly, we were like, we rented a hotel room and did ecstasy and we just had fun that night. That experience was good, but it was nothing more than just a fling. You know, it was nothing more than just sex. That's all that was. However, if we move on to the next relationship that I had, where I really did try to cultivate a relationship with this woman, I realized that she had a lot of emotional trauma from her past, from other relationships that had failed that made it impossible for us to really connect on a deeper level. And that was interesting because I asked her about her past relationships and they were with other white males. And Mm -hmm. I can only imagine, you know, it's already difficult for women as it is. Yeah. And then 
on top of that to be an African-American woman. And then, you know, I can see just being a white privileged male, you just, you have no idea, you know, you get into an argument and then you say a couple things and then Mm -hmm. you have no idea how much that impacts that individual. That's why, again, I bring up how important it is to have this type of conversation with the people that you love and that you respect and that you want to build relationships with. Yes. And there's a lot of things we can go into. Unfortunately, we don't have the six hours to do it. So right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to really bring in a couple of things that's really important. And I want to just, first of all, thank you for being so candid and, and, and open and finding these little places where you notice these black interactions that are useful because they have impact on how you bond with black people today. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. For better or for worse. Um, yeah. And one thing I want to just check in with you on is, as you're reflecting on these experiences mm-hmm. and sharing these with me, which I appreciate, what would you say are your top feelings that come up as you are examining these experiences and reflection of your first black experiences? Right now, we're talking about sexuality, but right now, what feelings come up for you right now, if anything? You just get like a, a flooding of adrenaline, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. talking yeah. about it. So to me, it's a... Uh, you know, I can feel my, my chest tightening a little bit, my breath being a little more shallow than it typically is because it's a very sensitive subject. And when I'm reflecting on these situations, it's funny because honestly, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude, number one. I, I just want to, for you and for bringing these questions to the forefront, I think it's really important, not only for myself, but again, as a reflection or a mirror or a tool for others in the audience to do the same. Because really, sometimes we can talk about something, but it's still very abstract until somebody actually sees it done so or hear it done. I do appreciate you bringing your work onto this episode because we haven't quite done it like this before. You know, we haven't done okay. this format before, so this is really special. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, I, I feel a sense of gratitude. I feel a sense of anxiety. Really, again, like a sense of kind of liberation, kind of feeling like... Mm-hmm. Uh, like I needed to be talking to you about this. Like this conversation mm. needed to be had. Like this is very cathartic for me. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I don't have any other African American friends or, or any black people at all to talk to. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah. I mean, I just, yeah. I, I just don't. And, and, and what's significant is that the conversations that I have, and the conversations that we are having, mm-hmm. most of the time, most white people cannot have these conversations that I am, I am facilitating. What do you think the common thread between these people that can't have these conversations is? Well, one of the things that's really great about being white, I've observed, <laughs> is you can get tired of racism and turn it off. Oh, shit. You can be like, oh, you know what? I'm so exhausted, man. Like, Trump has been in <laughs> office for like six months. I'm going to turn it off. I'm, I'm going to not fight for it. You are so right. Self-care. Yeah. And so as a black person, this is just one of a thousand ways we get really frustrated. We're like, <laughs> we don't get to turn it off. Holy shit. You're so right. We don't so get right. to be tired. No. And so it's hard for us to be vulnerable to you. Right. Like, being symbolic as white person. Wow. Um, because at any point, you can be like, I don't want to play this game. I'm, I'm tired. No, yeah. I got kids. I got bills. Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, depression is exhausting, you know? And we're like, yeah, it is. Um, so we're like, we don't trust you. You know, we don't trust you in that way. And, and tell, this is what I always say. I usually leave with this conversation. That I think it's kind of implied, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay that here, is that the only way that a black person could even broach the topic of being as candid as the conversations I like to facilitate mm-hmm. is that the white person says, I am committing uh, uh, the rest of my life. 
I'm not going to turn off rest of my life to dismantling racism. Hell yeah. And once that commitment's in place, then me, symbolically a black person, says I can at least engage maybe, right? Maybe I can engage. Dang. And the idea is that that's the part where it's like, man, I don't want to talk to you about this. I don't want to tell you about how um, I struggled from a childhood or how my cousin got shot or how my so-and-so. It, it, it sounds like a movie. I don't right. want to tell you my pain because you get to go, you know, that was really great. Now I'm going to go, you know, exit out of this conversation. I'm not going to stay. And that's why I said sitting next to black pain is a critical element of being close and bonding to black people. Because I was in an environment, I was in Oakland planning a workshop that never ended up happening. It was four white people and it was me and three other black people. And oh, okay. one of the black women came in and she had just lost her mother, just died. Oh no. Uh, maybe a couple of days before. Um, I actually was at the hospital with her and we were helping the transition happen. And she was still wanting to come to help the breakfast workshop. Mm-hmm. She comes into the room and she's just doing a pretty good job. And, and, and in the morning, when you're, when you're mourning a loss like that, it just shows up when you suspect it. And she began to scream. I mean, scream like you thought her arm was being cut off. And I'm familiar with the sound. I'm familiar with this pain. Mm-hmm. And she starts. And I come over to her and I say, I ask permission if I want to get close. She says, yeah. And she grabs my shirt. You think she's trying to rip my shirt off. She's just screaming and pulling my shirt. And I looked at the white people because I was focused on the counseling. I wasn't thinking about that there are three other white people in the room or several other white people. Right. And, and one of them's got been left. They just walked out of the room. Now, they what? knew this person, right? They just walked out. I can't, I can't be in this room with this much pain. And she cried like this for 30 minutes straight, right? And by the time she was done, and I rotated out, so I was there for maybe 10 minutes and supporting them. Um, the other council came in and supported her for another 10 minutes. We rotated out to, to pay her. I stayed present, but I, I, I let someone else come in intimate with her and get close to her. And she, she laid on the ground sometimes, sometimes she pushed. So I walked to the restroom during this time, and the white person was outside, and she had a panic on her face. She said, should I call the police? Should I call the ambulance? Like, what are you going to call the police for? What are you going to call the ambulance for? <laughs> I'm not sure what you're even out here for. She's like, I don't know what to do. I said, go in there and sit. Just be there. Just be yeah, this, is, this is her friend, right? Yes, she, she, yes, we've worked together, we're friends, we're, we're all been working together for at least five years prior to that moment. My point is, is that she couldn't even sit next to the pain. Right. She couldn't sit in the same room with the pain for more than five minutes. And then she'll turn around and say, I want to be close to black people, I want to bond. <laughs> yeah, this is a person that you said, wow, okay, this interesting. A, so, so the process is that she could turn it off, she could walk outside and Get on the phone. She could call her therapist, which is have your therapist great. But black people historically don't have therapists. Right. That's what you were you saying know? earlier. Yeah, we ain't going to the therapist. You think therapists and black people, you might as well say bomb. I mean, people are running. They're like, no, right. we're not going to go to the therapist. We've been hurt. And, and, that, and mind you, my father died horrifically. I found his body. It's a horrible story. But I was trying to find a therapist that was African heritage. Now, mind you, I'm in a pretty white area, but I'm an hour and a half from Los Angeles. I got Pasadena. I got all these pretty, pretty diverse cities around me. I couldn't find one African heritage therapist. Wow. Right. And I have insurance in this recent bit. Recently, I've got insurance in the last five years. But all were white, um, Asian. This is dark as I got as far as personal color. And none of them had real-time experience with black pain. None of them. Wow. And so for me, when we talk about what's one of the biggest gaps 
there's a thousand ones, but I would say the top is the, one of the lens I keep seeing is the ability of white people to check out. Oh, it's been 30 minutes. Oh, it's been, it's been six months and it's just so hard. And that checkout shuts down the conversation. We can use our privilege to help mm -hmm. facilitate these relationships. But how do we do that? That's a really big question because that's what I want to know. How do I become more of an ally? All right. So uh, you, you might hear trainers say, you know, it's not about dieting. It's about lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. It's how you live. Yep. <laughs> and this is hard if you live in like an area where there's no black people and just geographically you can't find them. Um, and that's just, I respect that, that, that limitation, that segregation and stuff that's taking place before you even arrive. You just don't have access to black people. You don't have access to black people like myself who's saying, I have the attention for your white privilege structure. And I have questions to help you break down that, hmm. you know, using my questions as lenses. Right. You might have access to that. I realize that. And even my system, I limit myself to five people because I, I go in so heavy. I can't take on a lot of people. So my point is this, I'll break it down this way. What is the solution? The first thing I'm going to talk for a moment to, to, I'll, I'm going to talk to five of your audience members, just five. I know that um, it's about that, about that many will probably be able to listen to hear this. Um, and I said that in all humility of understanding how hard this is, um, is that you from this moment, from right now, 11, <laughs> 11, 1203, um, uh, realize that you are going to make a commitment. And I'm not going to define that as like, I'm going to march every day on the street in, in, in racism. Mm -hmm. But you're going to make a personal in your self-commitment that you're going to do everything within your power, financial structure, geographical location, job, whatever you have. But within your power, says, I'm going to commit my life, whatever I got left, to dismantle racism. That's a goal. Yeah. That's, that's it for me. Okay? I, I got that in there. That is in place. The next thing is, is intimate Relations, being close to black men. Can I back that sure, up just sure. real quick? Because I sure. want I want to emphasize the fact that it is action. Okay, yes, so it yes. is. It's not just listening to this episode. It's not just taking yes. solace that okay, now you heard this. Now you're you know oh you feel good about yourself. No, no, that that's yes. not what we're trying to say here. The yes. the the big key point here is that you take action on this knowledge. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I just thought that was really important no, for people no, to understand. No, I, I, I appreciate the interruption. I'm going to add on to your, to your um, statement because this is, I'm so glad you clarified that because I can talk to you about push-ups all day long. Like, man, push-ups are great. I think if you do them this way and you do them that way, it's not going to get me any better at push-ups. In order for me to get better at push-ups, I have to do push-ups. You say that when you went to Echoes in Time, this rewilding gathering, you, you were mm -hmm. the only African-American there. So yeah. if this is what we're into, this is kind of our path how do we bring more black people into it with the trauma that they already have? Well, well, you know, I think another thing too is important to acknowledge and to, to think about is that this is going to take 30 years. Yes. To see some progress, right. not to completely finish it. And I think a lot of times white people are like, well, we can just fix it in six months, a couple yeah. weeks. No, this is going <laughs> to take the rest of your life and your grandkids yeah. might have the benefit of what we dream about because of the deep trauma in which this culture is created. Now, I will also argue that the rewilding community has a great opportunity because I've, in talking with these individuals, these are some most flexible, uh, thinking, um, able white people I've engaged with. Mm. They are very capable. If given the task to do work that people have been struggling to do in almost every other group I've tried to integrate and have helped try to think about black people. I'm using black people. We can fill in the blank of ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that I want to say that in my experience, in my kind of holistic counseling, people I'm counseling right now, 
that are in the Rodden community, their minds work very well, very well. But what I want to say is that what I find is when black people are being invited to a space before they even show up, and it's kind of what I kind of do when I show up to places, mm-hmm. is I want white people to ask themselves good questions first. Mm-hmm. Because I find that integration is so much easier when white people can think well about black people. Okay. Right? And so we aren't fearful of these taboo topics like sexuality. We aren't fearful of these topics of our first experiences. We aren't fearful about the idea of where our trauma lies and why we get nervous when that black man stands next to my wife or stands next to my daughter and understand right. what's coming up. Right. And we're not ashamed, like, oh my goodness, why am I feeling that? It's like, I'm, I'm understanding it's not, this is deep. And so what I find is when, when, when you, if you were ever to hear like a, a call with me and another white person um, that's counseling, we rarely talk about black or white. What we talk about is how they were traumatized mm. as a child, right. as a 15-year-old, as, a, as mainstream media. So black people come in and towards the end we'll find that a lot of times we are working on them being close to human beings because one of the traumas of white privilege is that we're all isolated, hence Vegas shooting, right? Hmm. I, I, I knew the dialogue. I'm going to go too far on this idea, but you know, every time, oh, they were nice. They were wonderful people. They were really kind, loving people. He's got a gun. And really? I mean, do we really know these people? Do we really know each other? Do we really have time to really investigate each other? I find that couples have, have companions I, I, I've worked with and which I started asking questions. They've been married for 10 years. And they, they've never asked themselves these questions. White people in a very similar situation. Mm. I, I, I say I want to be like, they don't ask themselves questions because they don't have to. There are a lot of questions I have to ask myself every day about my sexuality, about how I'm speaking, about how I present myself, that white people never have to ask themselves. So right. oftentimes I find that, yes, it would be great to have a, a black advocate to kind of help break down and build those traumas. But I find that black people have been working on our material because we have to. Ah, but the there key we go. thing is, yeah. is that we're trying to help white people work on their material <laughs> so that we can now meet you halfway. Oh, understand, black <laughs> people have gone much farther than halfway. What a white right? thing of me to say. <laughs> no, it, there's no judgment here. But uh. The idea is that we're working on this together, and your mind's flexible to see the picture of how we have yeah, worked. No, black I, people work really hard. I because just appreciate the clarity on that. Thank you. A woman, we were in a workshop, and a woman said, I, I have a hard time working with black people um, because it's it's conflict, hmm. and I don't like conflict. <laughs> what did she, what What did she mean by that? Well, well, the idea is that she probably tried to integrate with someone and tried to be friends, and they were like, "Get away from that! I don't trust you. You look like you don't understand my life." Mm. Um, and she gets in there, and she might go to their house, and, and mind you, for example, I went to pick up one of my young young um, mentees. I went knocked on their front door. And when I when I opened when it, the door just was opened up, it was it was already unlocked, and I, I kind of stepped in and heard some screaming and yelling and some fighting. And I was picking them, take them off to this gathering I had for them to help them work on this process. And their parents were in a full out brawl, like like knocking holes in the wall and full out brawl. Whoa! And, and the young person, maybe eight ten years old, walks in and goes, "Oh, I'm ready to go." I'm shocked. I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." Their parents, they're just you no, know, they're just working out some stuff. I'm ready to go. I've dealt with before this early on in some of my work and that this is conflict. Yeah. If you're going to get close to black people, there's going to be conflict because of all the white oppression we've had to undo for the last, you know, you know, 500 years, 400 years, pick your number. And so white people get engaged and go, they're just, it's dangerous. Yes, it is. I agree. And it's, and they get angry to yell sometimes. Yes, that happens. Okay. Then how do we, as white people, facilitate better conversations? How do we ask better questions of our peers? So 
this, this will feel like a plug, but it's the only thing I have to work with that's working for me right now. Okay. And that is why I have a one-on-one counseling program because this question has been proposed to me enough times that I realize that the people, I don't want to put it on the black people in your neighborhood that have this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll put you going out and be like, I, you know, I'm ready and I want to put out, you know, it's me, but I'll take responsibility for myself, right? right? As much as I can. Right. To use the structure and the systems and the, I have about 300 questions that we go through throughout a 16 week period of time to help give white people an opportunity to make mistakes, to say some things that are inappropriate to me in a controlled environment uh, okay. so that when they engage in the community, <laughs> they'll have tools and, and they'll make mistakes in the community, but they're going to make a lot less. Mistakes, oh, Aaron, right? this is so cool. Yeah, I love this. Um, and I, I, I do that. And mind you, I do that because I realize that when I empower, uh, empower you might feel empowered when you have questions, you have knowledge, but we still have major blind spots. It yes. takes Time, right? And I, if I can use this analogy for a second, um, I remember—I don't know if you've seen the movie *Karate Kid* in the nineties. Oh, no, absolutely. Watch, oh, yeah. right? And *Karate Kid* was—you know—he uh, had, had to go paint a fence, and he was pissed about it because he wanted to learn karate. Um, he really wanted to learn karate. He's like, "Paint the fence like this." He's like, "This is stupid. I'm not learning karate, right? I'm painting the fence and going up and mm-hmm. And he gets in there. He's about done. He's—you know—he's yelling. At, I want to learn karate, and he explains to him that he was doing karate the whole time. He was painting the fence. That was karate. He kind of explains how they can block. And he's like, wow, I know karate. There's a moment, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think white people need to paint the fence. And that's kind of what I do. Hmm. Is that I engage with them and, and, and help unpack with questions as a lens, the white privilege and their structure and how they think about themselves and how they think about black people. That is not a situation they get done. And all of a sudden, they go into culture. They go into the mainstream world. They go into the real world. And someone swings at them symbolically, not literally. And they can block themselves because they didn't the work of connecting and bonding with black people. Huh. You don't have to read a book if you actually have the real thing in front of you, right? Right. Uh, read books. Read them. Medical apartheid. Stamp from the beginning. Ne- yes, yes. But nothing is going to be a supplement for a real life African heritage experience ever. <laughs> right. Right. Ever. I love the stuff. I, I went and protested. I went and I went and uh, read these books. Have you held a black man's hand more than two minutes? Uh, ooh. Well, um, I don't hug. I don't hug or touch black people. I just don't do that. While he was passing me the book, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> exactly, exactly. Exactly. Right. And that was ten seconds. The idea is, is it matters to hold my hand as a black man, right? Yeah. Hold my hand and look me in the eyes for two minutes. Just look me in the eyes. Think about how powerful that can be for someone who's never actually had a real life black experience. What I'm saying is that. This is where we are. I realized that we wild in the community and these young kids walking to me and I realized that talking to me, this could be this kid's first experience with black African American male in person mm-hmm. because of that hyper white environment this child was raised in. Yeah. So when we have these experiences, that's why the one-on-one program I have is not a group phone call, it's not a webinar, it's me and that person to be as vulnerable, as raw, as clear as we can be for an hour, right? Yeah. And that's where I've seen the, the little move on someone's progress of understanding. That's what, that's what I'm doing. Right in the workshop I'm doing in Oakland, it's me and twenty people max. I'm hoping it's like ten. So you and know, we were gonna go one on one. Well, that that's interesting because you know what? I bet you most of the people that actually contact you for your services are typically in cities or suburban areas, not rural correct. areas. No, because the correct. people in rural areas there aren't African Americans there to interact no. with. No. Right? Nope. That's exactly. just crazy. Okay. 
Oh my gosh, Aaron. We could be talking about this for a long time. Like you said, another six hours. This is amazing. Okay, so <laughs> we're going to start wrapping this up. But what do you want for our audience to take away from this episode? The, the, the takeaway is I feel like it's the questions. And the action behind the question is to pick a time of your life, a day, to quiet your mind. And to ask yourself your commitment to any racism. And also I recommend that you reach out to one other white person, not, not five or six, but one other white person that's close to your husband, your, your older adult child or older child, and go through, and, 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 and I say as an amateur, as, as a white person not knowing exactly how to do it right, but go through and say, I want to, figure out what my own trauma story is, where this began, I call it sourcing it. Trying to source when you start to realize your white privilege. And then the last step I would say, and I would say find, and this is key important here, is find a group of people. Uh, and this is tough to say because some people aren't doing this right, but uh, there's a group of people, um, there's a group in Oakland called Wake Up, they're doing an excellent job. <laughs> and I don't know who all, where your audience is all at, but find, there's several really powerful groups. I'm gonna get some, a list here I'm going to try and send you uh, a couple of groups that are doing this well um, of white people and start asking these questions to them. Okay. And another practical way, and like I said, like I only take five people in my program, so I understand that's five (laughs) to get get on a list. But Mm -hmm. in in the context of of scalability, I feel like it's important for these list of questions to be asked for yourself first. And I say sit with them. Doesn't mean don't do nothing. To sit with them means to let them sink in and what I find is when I ask the person a question, for example, um, I'm committed to any racist for the rest of my life. That's a good question, simple question. Mm-hmm. But when you ask that question, it's thinking you walk around every day. Walk around with that question. Take it home with you symbolically. I and like that's that. the key is staying open in that idea. It's not giving up. And this is what, it's, 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 the last words you hear from me is white people. Don't get so tired <laughs> that you quit. Don't quit. I don't care if you're just Crawl along. Do not quit because we don't have a choice. And if you can hold that in your chest for a minute, that's what could happen. I, I, I'm reluctant to say, go just read um, a book. I always want you to reach out to your own human experience, examine yourself. And if you get, you know, if you're if part of that list and get on the program with myself, that's fine. But I'm going to get a list of programs that I see doing well work. And unfortunately, I don't see them in a lot of rural areas. <laughs> Hence the problem of this situation. But the idea is that we can have an action plan to ask ourselves those questions. I'm going to send you uh, my top five questions that oh, I want that you to, to sit, I would encourage you to sit with. Okay. Uh, and mind you, I have about 400, but I think five is what we can handle and what makes sense for average, average person okay. to really sit with. And those questions will open their mind up. And it, where they will lead is to be custom to them. But that's my encouragement for them to sit with those questions and let them sit with their chest and not give up. Oh. Aaron, just thank you, man. For the work that you do, for this beautiful practice that you're you're birthing into the world, I think it's extremely important, more now than ever. But before we go, how do people listening actually get in contact with you if they are interested in learning more about you and your work? It's very simple. I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. You can text me. I can give you the number now live. I can give you the number via text. I have a cell phone number. that I have a phone that's committed to this work. And people can text me anytime of the night. Um, their questions um, is 760 760- Eight eight five six seven four zero, and that number is the the lifeline to reach out. 
Will you, um, will you repeat that time. one more time? No problem. 760-885-6740. You can text that number and you can call that number and you can text it any time of day. I don't care what time zone you're in. You can text out your questions and I'm making myself as available as possible. Even if you aren't in the program, if I have a moment to answer your question, do some real-time feedback, I will. Wow. Um, because I feel like to me, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people. I've been in a workshop with 100 people. I'll say, give them that number, and two people call me. I'll take it. I'll take it. Right. So I'm talking to those five people right now that say, I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm going to reach out. It's not even about money. If I can get back to you, I will. Um, but if you want to go in more depth, we can talk about that later. But the key right now is, that you're thinking about black people better. So that's the best way. You can go to Turn Up Now Facebook page, but if you want to talk to me right now, call it that number. Simple as that. Okay, and the Facebook page is Turn It Up Now 1986? Two. 1982, excuse me. Turn It Up Now 1982, the year I was born. Um, uh, and it's the year that which we kind of started this movement not knowing it. <laughs> so nice. I, I was fighting from birth. Yeah, that's it right, man. Kind of, but yeah, we're turning up the greatness now. We'll be launching several videos um, probably in the next couple of days. Um, I'm not sure when this will go live, but we post several videos. I hope to give more information on how people can think about this. That's another action place that's oh, free and accessible to everyone. Oh, awesome. Thank you again, Aaron. Really, it was entirely my pleasure. It's been an honor to be here. And that wraps up today's episode with my friend Aaron Johnson. Be sure to head back for show notes, resources, and more at ancestralhealthradio.com. To all my hunter, gatherer, gardeners out there, remember to take a walk on the wild side. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating or review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com.